Now, just before Reverend Martin comes, I was um, reading today and I came across this little story about a minister who was invited to preach and do a series of meetings in a particular church. And in this pulpit, they had one of these lapel mics, but you plugged it into the pulpit. And this minister, uh, he, of course, was noted for uh, a, a bit of liberty and a bit of fire and would have banged and thumped the pulpit a wee bit and raised his voice a wee bit just to get the message across. And he was always moving about and going from side to side. And uh, at the start, of course, he pulled the cable and he had to reach and get it plugged in again. And this happened two or three times. And before he knew it, he had his leg wound up in the cable and it was around his waist two or three times. And there was a wee girl sitting down in the third pew from the pulpit. And she said to her mummy, Mummy, if he breaks out, will he hurt us? <laughs> God bless you. Thank you, David. All right. Thank you. I'm going to tread very softly after that, believe me. There's no mic. There's no mic. <laughs> Just preach away. This is a wee recording machine here. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you turn please to the Old Testament? It's the book of Jeremiah and it's the chapter 8. And as you're finding the place, I just add to the words of welcome that you have received. I always feel that it's always good to make people welcome. And uh, as believers, we would always want to have the grace of uh, hospitality. Uh, I believe it's something you have to work hard at. It doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, in Northern Ireland, we're a very reserved people. And uh, we're not just too keen and uh, to approach into people's privacy. And uh, if there are visitors here and they come during the two weeks of gospel campaigning, and if they sit beside you or if they're in front of you, or if you notice someone in and you say, well, I don't know who that is. Well, I think you should make it your business to go over to them and at least make them welcome. Amen. Never leave it to someone at the door because they could be distracted, maybe lifting a hymn book or talking to someone, and the person just get into the meeting. And then on the way out again, uh, that person's distracted who's at the door or the minister's talking to someone, and they sneak out and they say, Which I went to that meeting and not one person shook my hand. Not one person even hardly spoke to me. And all they did was shout at me from that pulpit. Well, you wouldn't want people ever to come into a meeting and feel it's a cold house. I always feel you have to make them welcome and there has to be a warmth. So don't be afraid to do that. Now, don't interrogate them. Don't say, now, where are you from? What's your name? What lodge are you in? Don't you try any of those things. You just say, basically, that you know where I'm coming from there. And you just say, well, we're glad to see you. Are you local? That's all you have to say. And if you find they're not just coming into conversation, don't try to drag it out from them. Just simply say, well, either could you say to them, did you enjoy the meeting? But don't tell me what they said. <laughs> All right. Unless it's positive. And then say, did you enjoy the meeting or would you come back again? And uh, if you if you want to, you can even tell them who you are. And you say, well, if you want to come back again, look out for me and I'll keep you a seat. It's always good. We have a lot of people in our church, as Wilma and Sir and James know very well, and Robert and Margaret. Uh, we've quite a number in our church, and they have the gift of being warm and welcoming. And I mean that. I could name a list of them. And you would be sure if you come into the house, they will make a beeline towards you. Uh, and they will make themselves known, and they will make you welcome. And uh, we've had a young fella come as a result of the outreach. He is started to attend. He waited behind one Sunday night and he came back to the Lord. And uh, even last night, although I wasn't there, my wife was telling me there was a visitor in uh, sitting down at the supper table. And this young fella, only a young fella, leaned over and says, who are you? Told them his name and says, I'm David Webster. Shook his hand and he says, I'm glad to see you and welcomed him. I said to a woman at the door one night, very glad to see you. He shook her hand. She says, you're the fourth one that has told me that. <laughs> he says, well, there you are now. If I had missed you, at least three others have gotten to you before I did. Now, that's a good thing. So do make them welcome. And I do believe that first impressions do last. And uh, we don't want to be those who are aloof from people. And uh, we would like to be people's people. I always class myself as a people's person. And... Uh, I always find that I'm very sociable and I like that side to the Lord's work. And I do feel that as believers that we should have that spirit that endears ourselves to people and that people feel that there's a warmth with us and that we're approachable 
and we're not snobbish and we're definitely not that. We know where we have come from. Uh, praise the Lord. We also know where we're heading to. Hallelujah. We do have that testimony meeting, the Lord willing, on Friday the 28th. It's the last Friday of the gospel meeting. I don't like to plug myself, but I do feel that a testimony does draw people in. And I do feel that I noticed a few flags on the way down as it's coming up here. Uh, it's an area, no doubt, that we could get these leaflets into. I intend, along with my assistant and some others, to do outreach on Wednesday. Uh, the only thing is, I got a phone call tonight to say that there's a funeral now on Wednesday. And uh, I'm hoping still that we'll arrange some outreach to get the leaflets out as early as we can. And if we need to do some more or revisit the area, I intend to do that. If you're free at all, if you have any spare time... Uh, if you feel you could help us on Wednesday, the Lord willing, then we certainly could use you. We have about a thousand of these or so, but we can get more if uh, we need them. And then the Lord willing, uh, if we have to return next week again and to go around another area, we'll do that. But it's important if we can get people in. And if we only get a small percentage of individuals responding, if during the outreach and the hours that I know some of you have put in already, uh, we get one or two, three or four, or maybe a dozen into the mission. Well, I feel that would be worthwhile. It would be worthwhile. Mm. And the Lord's interested in the one. The Lord's interested in the one. And if only one soul from Carrie Duff is saved during this mission, I'll tell you now, it's worth every effort you'll make. Amen. Every single effort in prayer Every effort you have made, even though some may not come, some may even laugh and mock as we heard. Well, don't be put off by that. R.A. Torrey, the great evangelist himself, said, I refuse to listen to the devil's discouragements. But that's what they are. And the devil knows how to discourage the heart. And I tell you now, that's the greatest weapon he has and all of his instruments to attack the Christian is the spirit of discouragement. So let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That's the first sermon over. Now we'll get to the proper sermon for this evening. It's Jeremiah chapter 8. Could I just lead with you the words of verse 22? It's in the form of a question, but we'll deal with the question in relation to the chapter, just exactly how we did it last night, in a, in a small way, an exposition that brings light to that little verse. Verse 22 of Jeremiah chapter 8, and here's the question. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered is there no balm in gilead is there no physician there let's keep our bibles open our finger upon the text of scripture let's seek the lord together please father in heaven i thank thee already for a sense of the divine presence we thank thee lord for the congregational singing the leading in the meeting the prayer we thank you, Lord, for the special singing, the reading of this little verse of Scripture. We think of the passage that relates to it and gives strength and light and hope in it. We ask, Lord, as we handle the word of light, that we will not do so, Lord, corruptly, but in sincerity and truth, that we might lift Christ up from the passage, that we might exalt Christ in the Amen. word. And we ask, O oh God, in preaching, Christ will have preeminence. So to this end, I ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, who the Lord Jesus said he shall testify of me for he shall glorify me so father i pray that i may not labor in the energies of the flesh that will bring lord glory to man i pray lord for cleansing through the blood i ask for the infilling of the holy spirit of god with wisdom and power and in blessing lord thy word save the lost in this house restore the backslidden revive thy church and father glorify thy dear son we ask these things believing in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. You know, the name Jeremiah means one who has been appointed by the Lord. And as such, he was appointed a prophet by the Lord from his earliest days. In fact, we don't have to turn to it for the sake of time. But in chapter 1 and verse 5, God says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So from his earliest days in conception, God singled out Jeremiah to be a prophet unto the nations. And his name literally means one who has been appointed by Jehovah. His ministry extended over some 50 years of faithful preaching. And guess what? During those 50 years of faithful preaching, he never saw a single soul converted to the Lord. Now, what would you think of a minister who has labored in a church for 50 single years and has never seen a single soul saved? I'm sure you, like me, would begin to question, is that man called of God? Did he miss somehow that calling in his early days? He has labored in that district. He has preached his heart out. And as we heard there, as our brother mentioned, he has preached himself tired. And not one single soul has ever come to the Lord. If you look with me at verse 6 of chapter 8 of the book of Jeremiah, you'll see that. Look what it says in verse 6. I hearkened and heard. And they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness. No man repented him of his wickedness. Not a single person turned to the Lord. And in 50 years of faithful service to Christ and the Lord, preaching and warning night and day. And remember this, he was a man of passion and compassion. He was a man with a burden, a man who's had tears night and day as he preached. And you would imagine that surely there's got to be fruit for his ministry. But there was nothing. Not one single person repented of their sin and turned from that sin to the Lord. Any wonder Jeremiah is described by most commentators as the weeping prophet. A man whose tears ran down his face night and day. And if you were to study this book, you would understand exactly why he's called the weeping prophet. We don't have the time. It's for a series of meetings rather than a single one to highlight the reasons why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. But if we scan this eighth chapter, we will discover some reasons why and the main reason why he's called the weeping prophet. If you look with me, for instance, at verses 1 and 2, and we may not have time to go through all these, but it tells us there in verses 1 and 2, for the sake of time, I'll just highlight it for you. The very bones of those who had died in the city were strewn under the open canopy of heaven. And in the Old Testament, when those bones were taken and the dead were desecrated by the enemy, it was a sign of God's displeasure in the land. And the Bible says that those bones were never taken by anyone. They were left there in public view and it was a mark of God's judgment and displeasure in the nation. And Jeremiah's heart was broken that even the dead and the princes and the kings and the sepulchers, they were robbed by the enemy. They had come into the land. They had scattered their bones across the open canopy of heaven. They were in public view and they were never buried by any single person. And it was a mark, a continual sign in the nation of God's displeasure. And they wonder his heart was broken. And if you look with me at verse 6, yes, uh, despite terrible judgment, not a single person turned to the Lord. It broke his heart. He <clears throat> preached night and day. He wept sore. His heart was burdened for this people and not one person ever turned to the Lord. And if you look at verse 6, he describes them as the horse running into battle. I give you the description of that as I come to it in another point and not labor the point here. They're like the horse, oblivious of danger, that lies ahead, that is driven mercilessly by the enemy to battle. And furthermore, if you look at verse 15, desolation would follow upon an unrepentant heart because in verse 15 it says, We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, Behold trouble. And then eventually in verse 20, and I'm sure you know the text yourself. 
Here's how it all ended. Verse 20. It says there that the harvest is past, the summer's ended, and we are not saved. And if you want the literal meaning of the Hebrew, this is it. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we cannot be saved. They'd overstepped the mark. You could write over that verse, the unpardonable sin. They had rejected the Lord for the final time. They had spurned every offer of his mercy and his grace highlighted in the sacrificial system that would point to the substitute Christ as the only hope and way back to God. And God said to them, even though there's a bam in Gilead, and listen, it's a spiritual application of a literal truth. Yet my people are not healed. They have not returned to me. And if these things broke the prophet's heart, I'm telling you now, this is the main reason why his heart was broken. Because in verse 22, which is our text, he says, Is there not a balm in Gilead? Is there not a physician there? The nation, or even the tribe of Judah, which Jeremiah was ministering to on this occasion. All they had to do, if they had any skin disease, if they had any defect upon their body, if they had any rash that was developing, if they had any sore or irritation across their body, if their face was coming out with wounds and sores, all they had to do in the natural realm when they were physically unwell was cross the River Jordan to get to the place called Gilead. And in that place, unique to that place, there was a tree that was growing. That when cut into with the knife and sliced into, it oozed out a soothing, healing balsam. And they gathered that from the tree. And there was a skillful hand of a physician in that place. And he knew how and when and how much and how often to apply this healing property and quality in that balm that came from the tree. And as a result of that, it was rubbed into sores and it was rubbed into cuts and different defects upon the body. And all the physical ailments, skin disease and other things could be treated with this ban. And God is saying to Jeremiah, tell them they know what to do when they're physically unwell. They know where to go when they have some skin defect. And they have some irritation on the body and some rash developing or some disease they fear. They know where to go. They go to Gilead and there's a physician there. And they know they can be healed and they go there physically to be healed. But the lesson is this and listen to me. No natural balm can save a person's soul. No waters of baptism can wash away their sin. This is a spiritual picture. It's what the Bible calls a type. It's what the Bible calls an illustration of a far greater truth. In effect, it's very similar to the parable, whereby it's true of an earthly thing, but it has a spiritual or a heavenly meaning. Because God has a balm. A sin-sick soul can be healed. Man's sin can be forgiven. And man's sin-sick soul, sin-wounded soul, sin-scarred soul, man's wicked, evil heart can be cleansed. And that balm is the precious blood of Christ. There is a skillful physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knows how to administer the healing balm to the soul of man. And yet for all that, not one person availed themselves of God's provision in Christ. Not one person repented. Not one person believed. Not one person spiritually crossed the Jordan, the river of death, and died to their old life and crossed over spiritually and received the cleansing of the blood. And I tell you this, it broke the heart of Jeremiah that there was provision. There was a remedy. There was a way of salvation. 
There was a way back to God. Yet for all that, they refused to be healed. They refused to come. And I want to take up the great theme from this text and this passage. The sinner's refusal to be cured. And it's remarkable how divine wisdom and instruction and counsel to Jeremiah, whereby he begins to show them exactly what they have done. And I want you to follow it tonight. Even if you're saved, keep your Bible open. I see you don't have pews in the church here. And if you've pews, sometimes what can happen is you can take your Bible, look at the text, fold it over, throw it into the little uh, part that keeps the books and the hymn books, fold your arms, put your head back, put your feet up on the side of the pew and just go to sleep. You know, I, I put people to sleep when I'm preaching sometimes and then they tell me I was listening to you preaching in my car and I thought that's a dangerous thing. There's people listen to me in the house and they fall asleep. So it's a dangerous thing to listen in the car. But it's a remarkable way the Lord develops this text. Yes, It's a remarkable way in this passage how the Lord sheds light on this text. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The sinner's refusal to be cured. Could I say first of all, that that refusal to be cured is characterized by foolishness. Now, I'm not just borrowing a heading. <clears throat> I'm not just alliterating. I'm not just trying to be homiletically pure and right here and get five out of five for preaching. I don't want that. I'm just telling you exactly that is the theme of this chapter. The sinner's refusal to be cured is characterized by foolishness. Jeremiah is instructed by God to do something. To show this people their folly. And he wants to highlight it in a remarkable way. That they would do something naturally. And it would be the right thing to do. And it would be utter foolishness in their eyes. If they didn't do it. Yet spiritually they don't act like that. Spiritually on a grander and greater and an eternal scale. They don't follow the same principle. They don't do the same thing. Now Jeremiah you go to them and tell them from me. How foolish they are. That their behavior is characterized by utter folly. It is senseless. It's irrational behavior. There's no logic behind it. And here's how he does it. It's remarkable. It takes the very simple things of life. And he shows spiritually that this refusal to be cured is characterized by foolishness. Look at verse 4 for instance. Look what it says in verse 4. Moreover, thou shalt say to them... Thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not arise? Question. Just underline that text, that verse, that little phrase. Shall they fall and not arise? Let me give you the example so that you're clear what God is saying. In the natural realm, can you imagine tonight that your minister comes to this pulpit to finish this meeting? And he says, we'll bow in prayer. And we do that. And all of a sudden when he says he's going to the door and as he comes down these steps, he falls. Shall he fall? And there he goes and he coughs and he doesn't hit his head. I'm being sure. racist to him. Sure he's <laughs> and there he is on the way down, pulling the pen out, of course, to get the claim signed. But he falls under the carpet. And what does the Bible said? Shall he fall and shall he not get up again? What's the natural thing to do if you're falling? I'll tell you what it is. I hope and pray nobody falls tonight. I don't want to put the scud on you. I don't believe in it, but you'll always get the blame for it. But what is a natural thing to do? To try and hold on to something. The general thing to do is to hold on to someone else and you bring them down with you. Or else you bring them to the other side and they cushion your fall. But if you fall, listen to me. You get up, don't you? Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You're a minister. Finishing this meeting, falling right there and just saying, Thomas, you go to the door. I think I'll stay here. Can you imagine that I say, you're not getting up? No, no, I'm all right. I said, if you hurt yourself, no, no, I'm fine. I'll just lie here. What would you think of him? Don't have to give me an answer to that, by the way. <laughs> and then when I'm at the door, someone said to me, he's still lying there. And the organist is sitting, playing and shaking and saying, is he going to get up or what? And then some of the men come over and say, David, you know, you really would need to get up, son. He says, no, no, just work away. I'm just going to lie here. What would you think of him? 
Would you visit him in St. Luke's? I tell you what you would do, you would phone 99, you would get in touch with the psychiatric department in the Lagan Valley or the Ulster Hospital and you would say, you need to come and take this fellow away. Now, can you imagine his wife comes over and his family says, David, Danny, get up, you're embarrassing us. Okay, you've fallen, but why don't you get up again? And then what happens is, he says, no, I'm going to stay here. So we're finished, everybody's away. There's only myself and one man left. And we come in and we plead with him to get up. And he says, no, just go on, put the lights out. I'll see you tomorrow night. And then we come tomorrow night and he, I know I'm just dragging you out a bit like, but there he is lying there. That's the illustration. Because it's foolishness if a man fall that he doesn't get back up again. But I'm going to tell you something. That's exactly what has happened to mankind. Mankind has fallen in Adam. They have fallen into their sin. And naturally when a man falls, he bounces back up again. But mankind lie in their sin. They refuse to get up and repent and turn to the Lord and come to Christ. And it's utter folly. Because what's true in man's natural instinct, in the natural realm when he falls, he gets up. But spiritually, he doesn't do that. On a grander and a more important and eternal scale, he doesn't do that. He lies in his sin. And if it's utter folly for a person in the natural realm, as we describe, and I know it's just a wee bit extreme, to lie there, you would say he's a nutcase. He's a headcase. He's mad. It's senseless. It's illogical behavior. It doesn't make sense. It's not right. Get up. Well, sinner, for years in Adam you've fallen. From you were born, you were born a sinner, fallen creature. And for all those years, if you're in this meeting house tonight, and I don't know your spiritual condition, and no one has singled you out to me, I don't even know many of you, and I mean that. But all I know is this, if you're not saved, you've fallen in Adam. And you're still lying there. And you refuse to get up. And you refuse to come to Christ and have your soul uh, saved and your sin forgiven and trust in his finished work. And so, sinner, such a position is senseless. And furthermore, look what it says in verse 4. Shall he turn away and not return? Shall he turn away and not return? And not highlight your minister, I highlight myself. Can you imagine that I'm, I'm coming tomorrow night with some people? And the Lord willing, some of them are unsaved. And I want to bring them to the meeting. Amen. But can you imagine as I'm driving, and hopefully my wife will be there. She's not unsaved, by the way. But I'm driving to the meeting. And I'm notorious for getting lost. Notorious for taking a wrong turn. She my mind's on everything else. And Jean's always saying, Tom, where are you going? And I'm heading literally in the wrong direction. And I am disorientated. And I say, I, I don't know. She says, we need to turn around because look, you're heading in the wrong direction. Now, can you imagine tomorrow night I'm coming and I have a car filled with people and I'm heading to Carrie Duff and my mind's on the meeting and there I go and I miss the turn and I'm heading. I don't know really where I am here, but I'm heading to Belfast. <laughs> I'm heading to Belfast. And as I'm heading to Belfast, my wife says, Tom, you're on the wrong road, son. You need to turn around. He says, June, don't worry about it. This road's bound to lead to Carrie Duff. It doesn't. Well, sure, I'm sure down the road here a bit, we'll see a sign and it'll maybe say Cumber. And then I'd cut into Cumber and it might even say from Cumber to Ballygown. And from Ballygown, I'm sure I'd be able to find my way to carry it off. I wouldn't be. I haven't a clue. They, they, they named a sat-nav after the wrong person, Tom, Tom. I tell you, they named it after the wrong person. But I'll tell you this, if I got lost, the natural thing for me to do is to turn around, isn't it? If you were going out here tonight and most of you, not all, but most of you should go out of the car park and turn left. You're going to say, is that right? <laughs> and you turn left or right. But if you turn the wrong way and someone in your car says, whoa, 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 you're going the wrong way. The first thing you'll do is you'll look for an opportunity to turn around. But listen to me as a sinner. You're on the wrong road. You're going in the wrong direction. The Bible says you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. And the Bible says you need to repent. You know what that means? To literally turn around. And in the natural realm, when it's pointed out to a person, they're going in the wrong direction. 
they naturally will respond to that counsel and they will turn around and they will go on the right path in the right direction. It's an amazing thing that the Lord has to tell a people who really of all God's creatures, they are supposedly the wisest. Of all God's creation, man has the the capacity to understand better than any other animal. And I'm not sure which is the most intelligent of animal creation. Some will tell us it's the monkey, but most people believe it's the dolphin. But yet apart from all that, there's nothing like the human mind and the human brain. God had created it. Yet they are the most foolish individuals of all God's creation. Any wonder the Lord likens us to sheep and hopefully you're not a sheep farmer. But listen, you're on the wrong road, sinner. And oft times in meetings like this and other times, God has commanded you to repent and turn around and make your journey to the cross, to the place where Christ died, to the place where he finished the work to save your soul, to that fountain filled with blood. But listen, you continue on the wrong road. If a person did that tonight, you would not sit with them in the car. You would count them as someone like falling, someone who's a fool. And someone who's been told, don't go that way, it's the wrong way. Turn around. And they didn't do it. Furthermore, look at verse 6. There is the horse that rusheth into the battle. Here's the Lord liking the sinner. His people, those that refuse to come to Christ. Those that will not be saved. Those who refuse to repent and look to Christ for salvation and Christ alone. There is the horse that rusheth into the battle. The horse is oblivious of what lies in front of it. It can be charged on at great speed. They may put blinkers on so it's not distracted that it runs straight toward the enemy. And if we take Bible times, the horse rushing into the battle, there could be arrows there that are filled with pitch and they're the flame. There could be balls of pitch and catapults that would be fired at the enemy. There's no doubt of what about it. There would have been spears and, and sharp implements. There would have been swords and staves and there would have been traps in the ground. There would have been huge pieces of timber shaped to a point that the horse's legs would have been cut from underneath them. There would have been uneven ground. So that the horses would have broken their legs and the rider would have fallen to the ground. That was all the tactics of war in Bible times. And yet the horse is oblivious to the danger that lies ahead. And my people are like the horse. They rush into the fiercest battle. And sinner, listen to me. You're on a collision course with the judgment of God. And you're blind. And you're rushing headlong in a mad career. And it seems you cannot be stopped. Have you ever talked to someone? And they know they need to be saved. And they know there's a heaven. But they just refuse to do it. And they go back to their sin. To their drink. To their their gambling. To their smoking. To their sinful life and living. And they will not be talked to. They will not be told. They will not be turned. They're like the horse. Rushing into the battle. Quickly. Look at verse 7. The stork knoweth her appointed times. Do you see it there in verse 7? The turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. It really means the time of their migration. When they're ready to fly. In this country, animals have more sense than sinners. You can see the swallows gathering on the telephone lines and wires. All of a sudden there, there comes a chill air, and it seems winter is approaching. In Northern Ireland, that's about June time. Winter's coming, the cold air is there, and the birds begin, say, it's time we were out of here. And they begin to gather. No one calls them. There's no siren. There's no special whistle that only birds can hear. There's no human being standing to make sure that they're chased out of the fields, that they're chased out of the barns, that they're chased from the rooftops and that they gather themselves upon the wires. And then when it comes to it, there's no blast or shotgun to scare them away. No, they know. They feel the chill in the air and they know there's scant food later on. And they have the instinct in creation to move to warmer climates. And to get to somewhere where they know there'll be food and warmth and shelter rather than stay here to face the winter of no food and the cold. And yet the Bible says God's people know not the judgment of the Lord. They don't even understand when things happen in their lives. And I could catalogue many things. What about when death comes to the family? 
when death comes to the community, when a friend of yours is taken out into eternity, when a loved one is gathered into eternity? What about sickness that comes into your body or into your family? Or what about some financial difficulty in the recession that we're having at present, some marital or family difficulty and problems that you're experiencing? Some issues within your own mind and your own body and your own soul. Some things that literally have happened in the workplace or some problems that are coming your way. They're all speaking to you. They're all reminders we're living in a world of chaos, a world of sin and a world of trouble and unhappiness. And as we were singing, none but Christ can satisfy another name for me. And furthermore, even God's mercies. Times when things could have been worse. Times whenever God showed mercy and you didn't realize it. Times when God intervened in your problems. When God kept cancer from your body. When God kept you safe on that accident on the road or that difficulty in the workplace. When something could have happened in your life and it didn't. Or when something did happen, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. These are all signs. Yet the animal creation knows when those signs come to move. My people, they know not the judgments of the Lord. They can't even discern or understand spiritually that these things are sent my way, not just to try me, but to warn me. To warn me. The natural disasters that are happening in England, the natural disasters that happen in this world, plane crashes, shipwrecks, car accidents, it does not mean that those who perish are bigger sinners than you and I are. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that if we don't repent, we could have likewise perished. That's the meaning of them unless God explains it himself in some other way. But that's the general meaning of all those accidents. They're sent in this world. They're allowed because of sin in the world to teach us. The brevity of our own lives, the certainty of our own deaths and eternity where? Where will you spend eternity? You know, to date, some of these things have never moved you. And my friend, listen to me. Even though there is tonight a healing balm in the blood, even though there is a way back to God through the finished work of the cross, even though there's a remedy for your sin-sick soul to date, God says your refusal to be cured is characterized by the same foolishness. Why will you not come to Christ? Why are you not saved tonight? Why, irrespective of who you are, have you not trusted in Christ alone for salvation? Could I say secondly, and I'll be quick on these two points, believe me. Could I say, secondly, this refusal to be cured was not only characterized by foolishness, but it was caused by deceitfulness. If you look with me, please, at the verse 5, you'll see that. Look at verse 5. It says, why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to turn or be turned. It literally means they hold fast deceit. They have been deceived. And if you look at verse 11, look what it says. For they have healed the, the, the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It sounds to me like many clergymen today were not here to bash anyone but to tell the truth. And they have everyone in heaven when they die. Irrespective of how they've lived. Irrespective of the fact that they have lived a sinful, ungodly and wicked life. And even their family can say, that man that I know, a relative of mine, he did not live like that. And if he's in heaven, then we'll all be there. Deceit. And other people have been told, by coming to church, that saves you. You don't need to be saved. See that mission? When you go to that mission and carry off and they're killing your road, when you go there, they'll tell you, you need the new birth, you need to be saved. They tell you you need to repent. Don't listen to those people because you're baptized and you've been confirmed and that's all you need. You're Christianized and you have had grace conferred on your soul by means of sacraments. And you're a member of this church, meaning their church. 
And I just emphasize no membership of the free church neither will save your soul. And the free church cannot save you. And if you joined this church, it would not get you to heaven. All I'm saying to you is this, that this refusal to be cured has been characterized by deceitfulness. They have been deceived. And I'm sure that many sinners tonight, maybe someone here, and the reason why you're not saved is because you've been deceived. Someone, no doubt the devil behind it, or even your own counsel, you've told yourself, I don't need to be saved. Or you've told yourself, I'm good enough for heaven. Or you've told yourself, I have plenty of time. But you haven't. You haven't. And you could be lost tonight. Simply because. Simply because you've been deceived. And it could be, I don't know, that someone in this meeting house tonight, they're not converted because they believe they're from a Christian family. And my dad saved or my mum saved or my grandparents or my brother or my sister or my aunt or my uncle or some friends that I chum around with, they're saved. So therefore I'm in their company. I'm brought up in a good Christian home. I'm brought up in a Christian church and even the little primary school or even the secondary school or even the high school that I attended, they had Christian teachers and I went along to some of the meetings. And sure, I'm found in the gospel meeting. Are you telling me that if I die, I'll not be in heaven? Well, I'm telling you if you're not saved. And you die without Christ, you'll not be in heaven. Here's what the Lord said. The most solemn words the Lord ever uttered. When he said to the Pharisees. He says, you shall die in your sin. And where I am, you'll never be. Most solemn words Christ ever uttered. And think of it. To die in your sin. And listen, we speak about those three great parables in Luke 15. I'll not digress because I might <coughs> preach in one of them. And we speak about the sheep that's lost in the mountains, wild and bare. And we speak about the sun lost in the far country. But what about the coin, the silver? It's lost in the house. And you could easily say it's lost in a godly house. In God's house. You don't have to be in a public house tonight to be lost and go to hell. You could attend every meeting in this mission and still perish in hell. You need to be saved. You need Christ. And you need Christ alone. And if I had a motto, I don't know what's in front of this here. I don't want to touch it in case I break something. But if I had a motto to hang over this pulpit fall, I would have two words. It wouldn't be the words of the last pope that died, totus juice, totally yours, which was Mary. You know, my motto would be two words for this entire mission. Christ alone. Amen. Christ alone. It's the pillow that I lay my head on tonight. My hope for salvation is not invested in the free church. It's not invested in the fact that I've been baptized as a child and I'm baptized as a believer as well. It's not on the fact that I've been confirmed and I have. But I'll tell you this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, Christ alone. What's your hope of heaven? Have you been deceived? Christ alone. Oh, but I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I go to church. So it's Christ and going to church. That's not Christ alone. But I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he died on the cross and I read my Bible and I pray and I do the best I can. Think about it. Is that your hope for heaven? I believe. I do the best I can. I'm telling you it's Christ apart. It's Christ alone. And this refusal to be cured could be the reason why you're not saved. It's characterized, no doubt, by foolishness, but it could have been caused by deceitfulness. Could I finish by saying this? This refusal to be cured, if you look at verse 20 of chapter 8, is literally a refusal that concludes in hopelessness. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. We cannot be saved. That's what it means. We cannot be saved. Now, it's not true of this generation. It's not true of you tonight because you're here. But it was true of these people. They got to the stage whereby it was said of them that God was striving with them, working with them. And now the summer, the harvest has passed. The summer has ended and they cannot now be saved. There was no hope for this people. No hope whatsoever for these people. Do you know the Jehovah Witnesses refused blood transfusions to their members? 
And I put it down on paper because I want to get it right for, say, a little recording machine here. But they refuse blood transfusions to their people. In fact, the very children that need a blood transfusion are taught by their parents and by the Jehovah Witness cult that they're never to take a blood transfusion and they should die before they take blood. Wrongly interpreting the scripture, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Totally wrong. That somehow your righteous life you're trying to live is taken out and somebody's wicked life is given over and you perish. What a load of nonsense. As if somehow someone else's sin and guilt can be transferred to you. Listen, the only time it can be transferred is at the cross. When Christ bore the sin and guilt for me. It's the only time it can be transferred. No receiving of blood, by the way, can ever transfer the life and sin of another person. But that's what they believe. And they deny it. The Watchtower magazine, May 22nd, 1994, called awake. In that issue, it catalogued at least many individuals who took their stand as Jehovah Witnesses. I want to single out three because they're only little children. One of them is a 15-year-old boy called Adrian Yeats. He died September 13, 1993, after the Supreme Court of Newfoundland, Canada, declared him a mature minor, that is, he was able to make up his own mind. And he, despite the child welfare system arguing and bringing it to court, the judge ruled that he has the right to refuse blood. He died on September the 13th, when he could have lived. Furthermore, 12-year-old Lini Martinez died in California on September 22nd, 1993, after the Valley Children's Hospice Ethics Committee ruled she too was a mature minor at 12 years of age and can make up her own mind. She refused the blood transfusion and she died as a result. Here was a cure and she refused it and she died. 12-year-old Lisa Cossack died, no date given, in Canada after holding off blood transfusion. That 12-year-old girl said, if you put up an IV pole, I will rip it down. And if you put up a bag of blood, I will poke holes in it. And shortly after, she died. Now, what do you think of the Jehovah Witness now? But I'll tell you this, sinner, you're no different. Because the very cure for you, the precious blood of Christ, you refuse. And you'll die in your sin. And where Jesus is, you'll never be. I want to finish with one illustration of this. The professor in the university campus, he said to his students one day, he says, I want you to do something. I want you to take a little piece of gold and he gave them all a very small piece of gold. And he says, there's a shelf, boys. It's full of acids. Now, here's what I want you to do. Pick your acid, strongest acid you you know. Look it up. Find out about it. I want you to fill the test tube and put the, the, the little piece of gold in. And if you want, you can mix those acids and make it as potent as you can and as strong as you can. And I want you men to find out what will dissolve the piece of gold. And they worked hard and they worked tirelessly and they mixed it all and they worked together. And not one young person in that university uh, room could say to the professor, I found what will work upon gold. They concluded this and they said, sir... There is no acid known to man that will ever dissolve a piece of gold. And he says, well, boys, I'll have to tell you something. The acids that you see there are nothing of those acids will ever dissolve gold. But there is one substance and one substance only known to man that will dissolve gold. Hydrochloric acid. Aqua regia. Royal water. Mm. King's water. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And he says, boys, try this. And they took the aqua, aqua regina, the royal water, and poured that acid in. And within a very short space of time, the gold was dissolved. And he says, boys, I want to lay aside the science for a little bit. And today it'll do you no harm to take a spiritual lesson in the classroom. Do you know there is only one substance in the world. More impervious than gold. And no matter what man does to that substance. He cannot erase it. He cannot remove it. He 
He cannot dissolve it. He cannot do away with it. And it's sin in the human heart. But there is one substance. The precious blood of Christ. Hallelujah. When applied by the physician, it can deal with man's sin. And boys, your sin can be dealt with through the precious blood of the Lamb. I'll change the text around as I finish. There is a balm in Gilead tonight. The precious blood. There is a physician here tonight. The blessed Lord Jesus. A skillful, loving, gracious hand to administer the cure. But sinner, you need to come. You must come. Will you not come? You say, I don't know how. Well, sinner, you just acknowledge that you are a sinner. You cannot save yourself and you believe that Christ alone died on the cross to save you. And then in repentance of your sin, turning from it, confess it to the Lord and ask Christ into your heart now to be your saviour, to forgive you your sin, to cleanse you from your sin and to wash you in his precious blood and to save your precious soul. And if you've done that and you mean that, then say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Ask the Lord to fill you now with his Holy Spirit that you may live the Christian life. But don't go away without the Saviour. If you say, preacher, I still don't understand it, but I would like to know more. When this meeting's over and it's over now, we'll be at the door, we'll be lingering for a little time. Speak to us. We're very approachable. We'll not embarrass you. We'll not name you. We'll not shame you. If we can, in privacy, we'll take you aside, open up the Word of God and show you from the Bible how you can be saved. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee tonight for a deep sense of thy presence. Yes. For those who have listened so intently to the word. Oh, and we pray now for the gracious workings of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When the voice of man falls to the ground, is silent mm. and dies. Let the still small voice of the Holy Spirit of God speak on, mm. convicting and convincing of sin, converting the soul, regenerating the dead spirit bringing life where there's deadness, Mm. bringing, Lord, hearing where there's deafness, bringing sight where there's blindness, Mm. and where there's lameness, causing the sinner to arise and walk to the cross. Mm. Lord, give the gifts of repentance and faith. Bring precious souls to Christ. Bring honour and glory uh, to thy thrice holy name. Get thyself a name and carried off, that sinners may fear and know that there is a God in heaven, Mm. a God of love, a God of grace, one who sent his Son to die. Lord, we pray that sinners might look to the cross and by faith look to Christ and be saved through the blood of the crucified one. Remember thy people as they leave the house, may we do so prayerfully and very carefully, pondering the things we have heard. And for any, O God, either backslidden, cold at heart, or even, Lord, out of Christ without a Saviour, may this be the night they're saved or restored. For we ask these things believing and with thanksgiving in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen.